Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Paul Maxwell, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Mate, sorry we were late. Um, <laughs> number one. That's uh, okay, I had a coffee, so that's fine. Yeah, no, do you know what? That's actually what I said to Brad this morning. I, whenever I'm with Brad, I don't get to drink coffee. You know, you wake up in the morning, it's some oh, green juice or it's... Because he's high in life when he hangs around me. <laughs> he wishes, he wishes. So um, where are we today, Brad? Well, we're in, we're in Brisbane in the Healthy Land and Water offices and uh, in, a, in a hopefully a reasonably sound soundproof uh, meeting room. <laughs> it does sound like a toilet sometimes. So I apologise to your listeners on that Might, one. Maybe appropriate. Maybe appropriate. <laughs> but look, uh, look I, guess, I guess first and foremost, uh, Paul, maybe I know you as the, your official title is the Strategic Science Manager at Healthy Land and Water. But just tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, what, do you, a, what do you do and how did you get here? How did I get here? Uh, that's, a good, that's a really good question. Look, I did uh, marine science at university but then studied rainforest birds for a postgraduate degree and the first job I got was driving boats for the Queensland government at 23 years old. So I peaked. That was my first job. <laughs> that was it. It's all downhill for my career from, the, from here. Um, Brad knows what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> but really a f- fantastic way of learning because you're out in the boat, you know, 180 days of the year. Moreton Bay, which is just offshore from Brisbane here, spent a lot of time there and every time you go out you learn something new, you see something different, you start to understand what that system looks like and how it operates. But I reckon you're tapping into only about 20% of, yeah. you know, actually how it's, how it's operating. Yeah, so yeah. that was a really instructive job and a role, I think. I still have fond memories of that. And as I say, you know, I'm driving a and computer how, now. And how, how old were you at the time? I just want to know Yeah, about 20, 23. Okay, that's pretty fond memories. You're basically out in a boat for 180 Absolutely. Oh, I couldn't funny. believe they paid me to do it. I <laughs> yeah. mean, yeah, it was really great, a really great job, yeah. Yeah. Right, oh. there's nothing like being out in the water to actually see firsthand what's going on. Yeah, um, that's that's right, Jeremy. I think uh, talking to fishermen around Moreton Bay, you know, we always think that academics hold the knowledge base of environmental science. But you have a chat to some of these fishermen, and John Page and Greg Savage, who we deal with quite a bit. These guys have 40, 50 years of experience wow. in, in Moreton Bay and fisheries, and they can tell you, you know, what's happening in the environment just by how much, how many fish they're catching. So. There's a lot of traditional ownership, you know, understanding and knowledge that we just don't tap into properly as a management. But we don't want to bag academics too much. <laughs> no, 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 I was about to say. I was about to say. I'm feeling quite good Dr. Paul Maxwell. 
I'm feeling quite good about myself. <laughs> no, we do love our academics. Well, I just want to say that clearly. Do they listen well, to what, you? What, what was your PhD in? I studied ecological resilience. So on the back of that job, I start, we started to see the assumptions in management of things like seagrass and coastal habitats. You know, if you if you clean up the water quality, you'll get these habitats recovering. And we didn't see that. You know, we've, mm. we've started to clean up the water quality and seagrass didn't recover to the extent that we expected it to. So I started to ask the question, well, why is that? Mm. Um, so I studied that. I looked at the resilience. Well, hold on. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem. I only had four years of the <laughs> No, I remember so, any of it. <laughs> well, it's because essentially things like seagrass, they engineer their environment. So... Yeah. They, they can resist impact to yeah. an extent, but once it's lost, that resistance capacity is also lost. So it's but almost like an immune, an, an opposite of yeah, an immune that, system that, type That's thing. right, yeah. yeah. So if you get rid of, you get rid of all the seagrass, then its recovery is really slow. There's a big lag time. Yeah. Um, water movement and wave action resuspends sediments, so the light environment's all wrong now. Mm. So you can't just turn off the impact and expect you know, the, the habitat to yeah. recover. It took about 15 years in some parts of the bay and almost 60 years for recovery in other parts. Wow, to, so. for seagrass populations to get back to what they were pre-impact. That's right. 15 to 60 years. Yeah, yeah, depending on where it was in Moreton Bay. So really trying to understand the feedback loops that were driving the resilience yeah. of those coastal habitats. And so what would impact the, the, the seagrass communities? I'm guessing mud? Yeah, so most simple that's right. Yeah, so everything that comes off the catchment, yeah. you know, uh, mud plumes, um, usually just drops the light and smothers the seagrass. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then seagrass can't grow. Yeah. Some seagrass is really good at, at um, putting up with that. Though. Yeah. So they've got they store carbohydrates in yeah. their root systems and rhizomes and all that sort of stuff. So they can hunker down over a flood so long as the flood's only thirty or forty days long. If it gets any longer than that, then they start to die off. Yeah. So, and obviously seagrass is fundamentally crucial to life in Moreton Bay in particular. And obviously we've got the iconic dugongs in, in our base. It's one of the few – I think it's the only place in the world, am I right in saying, where you can actually snorkel with dugongs and look – up and see the city skyline. Is that right? Yeah, that's the that's the yeah. rhetoric that goes around. It's true. Is that true? Yeah, is that true? I don't know that many people have actually snorkeled with dugongs <laughs> and seen them. They're pretty flighty out in the yeah. bay. But that's true. Yeah, I mean, there's six to nine to nine hundred or so dugongs out there, depending on the year. Yeah. Um, I have heard estimates of up to twelve hundred. Depending. Wow. And obviously um, they eat seagrass. They do, yeah. So you've got dugongs, you've got sea turtles. Obviously yeah. they're the iconic species mm. that we keep talking about. But more importantly, I think, for the economy of the region is just as soon as you get seagrass, you get fish. Yeah. And all the commercial fish species that we catch, all the recreational fish species that people catch, the majority of them at some point in their life cycle use a seagrass meadow. Yeah. So yeah. just having that meadow there is a nursery habitat for those fish species. And that's one thing we actually talk about. Because to be honest, when Jeremy and I go around the countryside, well, talking well about, done, Brad. When we well talk, done. When, when Jeremy and I go around the countryside talking about waterway health, a lot of people don't care about fish and dugongs and turtles, whatever. But you know what? Everyone cares about the almighty dollar. And I remember there was a study. Uh, I think it was 2011, which actually quantified the value of Moreton Bay, and I think it was uh, estimated. Uh, to have a value of about $5.1 billion a year to the Queensland economy. And you can imagine, I think roughly say one or two million would be per year would be commercial fishing. So even if you don't care about dugongs and turtles, if, if we didn't have commercial fishing or if, we didn't, if, if our fishing industries were impacted because of a poor water quality uh, period, that has a dramatic impact on our economy. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's the fundamental underpinning of um, of that part of the economy, and everyone gets fishing too. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't enjoy eating fish, you understand it's important sure. for the local economy. We've even done estimates. Waterway recreation generally is valued at about two point three billion dollars a year. Yeah, just yeah. in Queensland. It's in, just in southeast Queensland. Wow. Yeah. So we're just talking about people walking alongside the river. You know, they spend a little bit on coffee. That you know, you go down to the Wynnum foreshore yeah. and down at Morton Bay, and you you know you you buy fish and chips for dinner, whatever it might be, you're doing that so regularly and so many people are doing it that it's worth about $2.3 yeah. billion. I mean, there's a big variation in yeah. that number, of course, yeah. but it's a substantial amount. Yeah, we, we, I mean, that's something that we've sort of tried to bring awareness around is, is exactly that point. There's so many benefits across multiple sectors for good water quality. And I guess that's one of the main reasons we're here to have a yarn to you is about the, the, the report card that you guys have been putting out for, what, the last 20 years? Yeah, well, I guess, years? I, guess, I guess before that, so the, the report card, which Jerry mentioned, is actually a key deliverable that is provided by Healthy Land and Water. But is that, is that, the, is that the main thing that Healthy Land and what Water do? What else do you do? Well, what, what does Healthy... Well, I guess Where's Andrew O'Neill? What does he do? <laughs> what does, he been here? asking that question for a long <laughs> yeah. time, Jeremy. What does Healthy Land and Water do for the, for the layman, for the yeah. listener? Right, so we're the natural resource management organisation for South East Queensland, so the the whole countryside is broken up into 56 different natural resource management mm. regions and we're the organisation recognised by the federal government to do that for South East Queensland. So we do a whole bunch of different stuff. We um, Obviously we have a monitoring and evaluation program which then releases the report card um, so we look at waterway health. But predominantly what we do is is facilitate the natural resource management plan for South East Queensland which has 42-odd targets looking at natural resources in, in the region. And we facilitate that. So we don't do it ourselves necessarily. We do bits and pieces. We're not a very big company, but we try and facilitate other organisations to do it. Well, I was about to say, I mean, I haven't been here for a while, but You've moved into some flash offices, mate. <laughs> you know, like, well, I haven't. You've, you must have moved in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. we've we so two organisations amalgamated. Mm. So SEQ Catchments, um, which you may know of. So they were the previous NRM body, and then Healthy Waterways, mm. which had the you know did the report card and um, water by design mm. Mm. Um, and, and some education programs. They amalgamated together, and then we've we've come into this office. So and it makes sense, obviously. Southeast Queensland Healthy Waterways was focused on assessing the health of waterways in, in Queensland and, and trying to protect them. Obviously, the health of waterways is dramatically impacted by what's happening on the land. So, to combine SEQ catchments and SEQ healthy waters, it's pretty. It's a good partnership, really. Oh, well, like well, it makes perfect sense. Really. <laughs> but, but how is the marriage going? Are you guys having fights around the cooler, water cooler? You know, like <laughs> it was my project. <laughs> no, it's it's been going well. We're really starting to hit our straps, I think. So, there's uh, the one side of the business which does a lot of on ground work. You know, uh, works with community groups uh, as well as organisations to do physical on ground restoration works and. And then there's the science and the research mm. component as well. So it really brings that together. I think it complements quite well. And obviously when it comes to science and research, you're the man around here. Is that Doctor. What, you're, 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 Dr. Paul. <laughs> just remember <laughs> Not that. at all. <laughs> Doctor. And obviously healthy, like we mentioned, the, the ecosystem health monitoring program. And so you guys are out there assessing the health of the Moreton Bay and the waterways and the catchments. So can you tell us about a little bit about this monitoring program? Because it's pretty amazing. So we've been doing this since I think 2000 was uh, late 1999, 2000. It focused predominantly, um, it's a program that was set up through UQ. Uh, So Bill Dennison was sort of almost the the scientific guru of this back in the day, Um, brought together all the organisations around South East Queensland who recognised there was an issue with Moreton Bay Mm. and that there was no one organisation that um, had responsibility for protecting and to restore it. So, you know, they they came up with a strategy and they needed a monitoring program to evaluate that strategy. So EHMP uh, was born essentially. And Um, and so what is actually, 
physically involved? Yeah, so again, we get we get guys going out in boats. So that was me back in the day. Not so much now. <laughs> so this is what you do now. You yeah, still go out in boats. People to go out in boats. <laughs> it's so sad. 180 days a year. You're going to depress me now. I, 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 I drive I drive a computer while those other guys out in the boat. So anyway, um, <laughs> let me ponder that for a while. <laughs> no, they they look. There's uh, people going out in boats. So we do a lot of water quality analysis in the estuarine and marine yep. environment. But we've expanded a lot over the years, mostly because the threats to the values that people are interested in have changed. So the first step is to set the values that people care about. Fisheries is one of them. Mm. Water quality is you know, a, big, a big threat to that. Habitat loss is a big one. So we kind of monitor those elements out in Moreton Bay, um, look at key habitats, corals, seagrass, mud content. Uh, salt marshes, mangroves, uh, water quality, as I said before. So, you know, that's a big part of it. And then we go up into the catchments as well and we look at the freshwater health of uh, all the freshwater streams. Um, so we have 135 sites around southeast Queensland and all the catchments. It's 135 sites and you're generally going out there generally once a month and assessing the water so quality? So not the freshwater component. Yeah, yep. yeah, we do. That's a really comprehensive analysis mm. that gets done once a year. Once so a year. you don't have to do it. Yep. Although we do an event monitoring program out in the catchments as well. In the estuaries, the water quality stuff's done you know, once a month. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and How do I get a job here? <laughs> you <laughs> can have my job. I can have the boat again. Dr. Jeremy, no. And, and in terms of water quality, so what sort of water quality parameters are taken into consideration in developing this report card? The way we start, and this is a problem with a lot of monitoring programs, you know, you just get straight into the indicators, but you, you've got to look at the values first. Yeah. So, you know, water quality generally, who cares if it's poor water quality if you haven't got any values that you want to protect? But, of course, people like clean water. They like, you know, having fisheries. So what are the threats to those things? Well, turbidity, so sediment, mud, that sort of stuff. So we monitor how, how clear the water is. And we also dissolve oxygen is important, so the amount of oxygen in the waterways is critical for fish and other, other life. So we monitor that as well. Uh, pH is a big part of it. So pH can, can cause all sorts of problems with reproduction and development of, of um, invertebrates, which form a big part of the food chain. So we monitor that. Um, and we, we have started sort of jumping into looking at public health. So looking at the threats of waterways to people um, swimming and boating and kayaking. And we do that. So bacteria that's concentrations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So more bacterial concentrations. So for public risk, essentially. And emerging contaminants, are you sort of, is that part of it to going, hey, what's on the horizon? Like we spoke before, you listened to one of our podcasts, uh, Nicholas Brenner, um, in regards to PFAS. Are you guys sort of looking for what's next? And then do you make a decision, are we going to put this into a, the report or not? How, how is that? Yeah, that's Done. that's a good. It's a really good question because it's it's we've got twenty years of history now, and that's that's great. But with that comes twenty years of inertia. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, what I mean by that is that you, if you're trying changing all the time, then you lose that communication yeah, power. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, you need to change. You need the flexibility to say, let's pick up on these emerging contaminants. So we have been. We don't necessarily change the report card all that often, but we change the monitoring program that sits beneath the report card quite regularly. So we, we retain the indicators that we've been doing for many years and we pick up on new ones. So we've just started looking at PFAS being obviously a big threat to the environment, but also things like heavy metals and pesticides and herbicides. And we just started looking at, we did a really big study with the University of the Sunshine Coast uh, this year and a little bit of last year, looking at that those contaminants in fish flesh. One of the biggest questions we get at Healthy Land and Water is, you know, that's great, all that water quality stuff's fine, but can I eat the fish yeah. in the river? 
So. Can you eat the fish in the river? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> so we studied two species. So yellowfin brim, which is the most highly caught species of fish yeah. in the rivers in southeast yeah. Queensland, and we looked at mud crabs as well. We found nothing. So that we know that PFAS particularly is in the sediments and in the water column yeah. of or a lot of our estuaries, really? particularly in the Brisbane River. But wow. it's not, um, as, as Nicholas sort of yeah, pointed yeah, out, yeah, but, yeah. but it's not in the f- flesh of the fish, so it's not making itself through. Uh, so it's not bioaccumulating. Yeah. That's right. Oh, not yet. So something's, so something's going on. It is a great news story, yeah. 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 Well, that's why we're here to talk about it. We do like good news stories. So often, often we find it's doom and gloom. Yeah. So that's nice to know. We can come and have some uh, some brim up here. What about what about oysters and prawns and, and those types of crustaceans? Are they still good to eat? So we didn't study that in this particular study Answer the question, Dr. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> this is when a scientist goes, yes, but no. But, um, but you know, we've, we've had issues with our, with our prawns. There's been a white spot disease, which you may have heard of. Yeah, um, that's been a big issue with the prawn industry. You know, there's quite a lot of lot of uh, issues around that. But effectively, anything that's sold commercially from the local providers, if it's sold commercially, it's well regulated, so it's safe to eat. And what about plastics? What about microplastics in litter? So we we don't scientifically sample that, but we do have a litter cleanup boat. So yeah. we've been running litter cleanups essentially for. I think about 10 or 15 yeah. years now. Yeah. I was just talking to Rachel uh, Naspazes who yeah. runs that project and she's mentioning it's around about 14 tonnes of litter tidied up from the Brisbane River in the last uh, year or so. So 14 tonnes. Mm. Do you know what they're picking out of the Brisbane River? So lots of plastic bottles, yeah. uh, plastic bags, but all sorts of different things. So we picked up a gas bottle not long ago, a big, not, not just Is a small Is that where I lost it? <laughs> <laughs> it's still half full, mate. So, yeah, yeah oh, mate, it's, positive poly. <laughs> it's been fueling our barbecues wow, for ages yeah. now. Wow. And so, so obviously there's a lot of community attention and concern around plastics. So why isn't that something that is integrated into a, a fairly extensive monitoring program? It's really difficult to do, yeah. uh, well, what the, I guess the word would be representatively. You know, when you're doing a water quality monitoring, you want to make sure that the sample you're taking is representative of that part of the river. So yeah. if you're collecting litter, you know, you know it accumulates yeah, in yeah, different yeah. places and you've yeah, got to make yeah. sure that you're, you're doing it as a representation so you can compare the data sets over time. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, yeah. like if you look at Sydney Harbour, the, the daily recommended dose for the intake of a prawn is one. No, no, monthly, I think it Mon- is. I think if you ingest more than two prawn a month. We you- better get this right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's bugger all. I mean, yeah. coming up to Christmas, I mean, imagine going over there. Well, Brad, you won't, won't but Paul, hey, at Christmas, let's go crack a prawn. <laughs> Share a prawn. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah no, not but me. you know what I mean. Like it's mm. it's it's a worrying sign, uh, not only here because there's something like thirty um, percent of the turtles found dead in Morton Bay have ingested plastic or full of plastic. I mean, surely, I mean, everyone loves a turtle. Surely, you know, there must be a plan, maybe to 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 try and work out where the plastic's coming from. I mean, you've when you talk about evolving the report card. Get the think tank together and go, well, how can we build a data set around where this is coming from? Is there anything in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been trying to work with the state government on that very question. So there's been a lot of interest in microplastics. Mm. And in a way, microplastics are a lot easier to sample because they're distributed pretty much ubiquitously around the environment. Macro litter. So the stuff that floats is yeah. a lot more difficult to get to get right, but there, we are we are talking about trying to do that because, as you say, you know, it's found in all sorts of things: shorebirds, turtles, um, but more worryingly, fish that people consume. Well, more worrying us. I mean, there's yeah, that's right. You know, we keep banging on a couple of credit cards a week of microplastic we're, we're ingesting. Mm. You know, where is it coming from? How's it all going? And look, it's something that that obviously Brad and I and Ocean Protective have really grasped. I mean, we've been doing stormwater for a long time under Stormwater 360. 
plastics here and before that I think was Ingle Environmentals and, 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 and we keep saying plastic's really given us a voice because it's like what else is in the water? What else is going down the drains? What else is in our receiving environment? So interested to hear that it's um, certainly on the horizon but not something that we'll see in the report card over the next few years or... Well, I certainly hope so. It'll probably take its place in the monitoring program first mm, yeah. mm. Um, and then it'll make its way into the report card. We certainly use it for narrative. So the report card's a fantastic tool to get people's uh, attention and then, but the really important part of it is the narrative around that. Yeah. So you might say, you know, Noosa gets an A or yeah. Brisbane River gets a C minus or whatever it might be, but the narrative around why that might be and the stories around that are, the, are just as yeah. important. Oh, for sure. But we probably should explain what the report card is. So sure. obviously the Ecosystem Health Monitoring Program, a bunch of monitoring at a bunch of locations all around southeast Queensland. And essentially you take all that information and digest it into a report card grade for various river systems and catchments across Southeast Queensland. Is that more or less? Yeah, yeah. that's exactly. You should get a job. There you go. Well, yeah. maybe good. Yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> you're welcome, Brad. You're welcome. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, that's so, exactly what happens, yeah. Yeah, so, and to be honest, we've, we've just come from Noosa. We had a great meeting this morning with the, the, the mayor and the councillors up there. We spoke with Chad from Plastic Free Noosa. And Noosa's obviously a beautiful part of the world. Well, hold on, let's... Isn't the Queensland government today put a ban on single-use items? They, they have actually. They're, they're planning to introduce a ban on single-use plastics, specifically I think it's cutlery and plastic plates. But their, their long-term plan is to essentially progressively phase out or ban other single-use plastic items such as single-use plastic water bottles. And wouldn't that be wonderful for the Brisbane River? You might be put uh, – healthy land of water might not need to actually pull out 14 tonne of, uh, of plastic water bottles every year or whatever they do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a fantastic initiative. Yeah. I mean, the, the, on the back of the – the, the plastic bag ban, I suppose. Yeah, and that's something we talk about. Like we, with stormwater treatment assets, for example, we're often the, the final lifeguard be- between the urban area and the waterway and, you know, they capture a lot of gross, uh, gross pollutants. So single-use plastic bottles, wrappers, plastic bags, co- Coke cans, et cetera. But to be honest, if we, get, if we don't need to actually treat or capture those materials in the first place, 
i.e. if they're not in the catchment in the first place. That would make our job a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that's the thing. At the moment, we're collecting litter from, you know, from all the ester or four or five mm. estuaries around southeast Queensland, Brisbane River being a big one. But, you know, it's literally cleaning up. You know, yeah. you, you want to get it at the source. You want yeah. to get that behaviour change. Um, yeah, and we talk about there. this waste management hierarchy. So clean up is the lowest of the low. Like it's the, the right. least effective. It's the most expensive. It's far more easy to essentially basically uh, reduce, reuse and recycle at the source. So basically reducing pollution at the source. And if we need to put in some treatment assets, fine. And the Ultimately, you can do the cleanup, like we saw maybe Boyan Slats getting a lot of attention with his ocean cleanup and his interceptor, et cetera. But it's probably the, the least efficient, least effective, and the most expensive. We did a um, podcast with Katie Defon from Sydney Institute of Marine Science, mm. and um, she told us or indicated that for every half a cup of sediment that they found in Sydney Harbour, there's 60 pieces of microplastic. Have we started to do something like that within Moreton Bay? Not not necessarily uh, what your organisation does, but if, do you know of any studies uh, around what's happening there? Yeah, there has been a little bit of work done in Moreton Bay, but not a hell, hell of a lot. So um, it's certainly something that we're interested in doing. CSIRO did did that great study. It was sort of almost a, all around the coastline yeah. of, of Australia. Um, and they did pick up a site in Moreton Bay, but but we, we needed it at a finer scale to understand where it's coming from and, and what are the where are the, the hot spots, if you like. So because, because this is where it's at, you know, let's just talk frankly. The current political landscape for stuff we do is not great. There's there's not much climate policy going on with the Liberal government. But the one thing Scott Morrison has has come out and said at the UN recently is we 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 don't want plastic in our oceans. Now he's come out and said a pretty big statement. I don't know if he's trying to do a leg glance. What plastic does, it, it, people can resonate with it. Paul, you know people people talk, you talk about nitrogen, phosphorus, um, bacteria. Look, I even go to sleep with that. But <laughs> but if, if you talk about plastic, people are like what? We don't want plastic, you know. So in a way, I. You know, I'm not telling you how to do your job, but as soon as you get, as soon as you get <laughs> Dr. Paul Maxwell, <laughs> Dr. Paul, you'd be the first one who didn't tell yeah. you how to do my job. But you know what I mean? A, a, a lot of people, a lot of the community, especially you know, people understand plastic. You can physically see it; that's in their everyday lives. You know, it would be a really good way to expand, maybe the, you know, the, the amount of people that care about the report card. I mean, because look, who, who cares about the report card? The councils, you know. I mean, do, do the community care? I think they do. Yeah, I wasn't asking you. <laughs> so let me let me deal with that first part. I mean, that the 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 statement you made about people care about litter and they don't care about the nutrients and and you know the sediments and whatnot. You're dead right. So we have good data. We do a community survey as part of the monitoring program, um, and it makes its way into the report card as well. We look at three and a half thousand people across the region, and we ask their opinions on how they use what what they think about their waterways, how they use it, what are their biggest concerns about it. And when you ask anybody what their biggest environmental concern about their waterway or the waterways in southeast Queensland, litter comes out as number one. If you ask them about sediments, sediments comes out at the very bottom of the list because no one really cares, right? Yeah, no, Sedi- yeah. no, scientists dirt. exactly I mean, we who, cares, who cares right? about dirt, mate? But yeah. scientists will tell you that the sediments are the most important thing. Yeah. But so when you split the split up the, that that particular community survey and you say of those people who would can be considered environmentally minded, then litter is number one, but then they think about things like climate change and biodiversity. Then if you just split it to the other side where people are who don't care about the environment, litter is still number one. Wow. But wow. then it comes into things like water supply, flooding, um, you know, the things that, that 
that will impact on their particular life. Can we get some of that data? Because we we, we, we talk yeah, to people the whole time and the more, you know, data is the most important thing. And that's something that you guys have got over the, mm. you know, t- the last 20 years. It's just very strong when you can go into a, a council or a community or a school and go, hey, guys, this is what's been happening. So please share it. Otherwise, you'll never come back on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we, we're desperate to get this stuff out because yeah. um, it's very clear to me. I mean, I'm a biophysical scientist by trade. You know, I spent time and boats looking at seagrass. But at the end of the day, all these environmental problems have a social and economic answer to them or a solution to them. So, you know, understanding how people think is critical to get that positive message out. Yeah. And I think if we're trying to drive change, which ultimately we are, we need to sort of, I guess, meet people where where they're concerned about. Like ultimately... Jeremy and I aren't advocating for. Jeez, you're getting good at that. Aren't advocating for just no more plastic in our waterways. Ultimately, we want healthy waterways. We want clean waterways, rivers, uh, bays, etc. But having said that, what the community, what we, we what our, our feelings are, is that the community don't really understand a lot of the issues that we would like to talk about in terms of you know sediment concentrations of nutrients and heavy metal contamination. It's a really confusing subject area for yeah. a lot of people to get their head around. But what everyone understands is plastic and stopping plastic flowing into our waterways and oceans. Everyone gets that. Ultimately, we're using that as a way of piggybacking better catchment management and protection of our waterways, but we're probably using plastic as the unit of currency in our conversations. Yeah, so we're, we're calling it the gateway drug, yeah, the gateway exactly. concern <laughs> essentially, right? Because you yeah. want that you get them in with the litter, they're yeah. concerned about that. A lot of people do litter cleanup, yeah. um, they're worried about it, and then you can you can start talking exactly. about the other issues that they can get yeah. involved in. Yeah. So look, key question, how healthy is Morton Bay? Is it okay? Is it not? So <laughs> it's <laughs> it's in really good condition at the moment. Um, and Great. So, I mean, and there's two elements to that. The first one is a long-term improvement. So we're talking a 20-year improvement. Mm. Uh, and that's not, nothing to be sneezed at because back in 2000, you know, when I first started yeah. as a 23-year-old, a really bad water quality problems. Seagrass had been lost um, in floods, and you know the whole region got together and said, "We need to do something yeah. about this." So they they implemented this strategy. They spent a billion dollars on treatment plant upgrades, so sewage treatment plants. So just backtrack. So nutrients were consi- were identified as a key the biggest threat, biggest threat to the health of Morton Bay. So they got a billion dollars worth of cash, and they use it to upgrade their wastewater treatment plants. Absolutely. So that and that happened over. 10 years, mm. finished in around about 2007. I think all of them were done by 2007. You know, the old one was upgraded after that. We saw a four-fold improvement in those nutrient concentrations in the Brisbane River um, and then out into Moreton Bay. And subsequently, we've seen recovery of seagrass in the worst part of Moreton Bay uh, just in the last two years on the back of that improvement. So that for me is something to be celebrated. So that yeah, long that term... must make you feel pretty bloody yeah, good yeah, considering really where you've come from, being out I, there. You know. I genuinely don't believe that when they framed that strategy, they were thinking that far in advance. They said by 2020, we're going to have all this stuff back. But it was so far in the distance, mm. no one really thought that it, it was going to work. Yeah. But it has. And we, we don't ever celebrate those big victories. Yeah. You know, we have got lots of threats in the catchment and that's, sure. that's you know, to, not to be sneezed at. But really celebrating these victories and saying, well, you know, we've got this seagrass back um, and that leads to fantastic fisheries production. You know, the local fishermen are frothing over this seagrass meadow. So can you just explain how the seagrass populations did recover? So you you reduced nutrient concentrations in the waterways and Moreton Bay. So just explain to the sort of layman, how did that actually help the health of Moreton Bay? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as I sort of talked about before, seagrasses, you know, they do a whole bunch of 
good things. Mm. When they grow, they stabilise the sediment, so it, they can't it can't get resuspended. So they, they basically lead to better water quality in the in the shallow the shallow coastal areas, um, and they also provide then habitat for fish. As soon as you improve the water quality, and you you, you eventually do get seagrass back, you don't you're not getting the algal growth. Yeah. So poor water quality leads to algal growth, which inhibits seagrass growing. Yeah. So once you get seagrass back, that inhibits algal growing, and you get much. So just to explain that link again, so nutrients in our waterways and in Moreton Bay uh, can facilitate the increased growth of algae in our in our bay and waterways, and because the nutrient concentrations are essentially lower, uh, essentially algae blooms less frequently and less you know i guess less you know, i guess an extent so basically the, the 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 seagrass has more light penetrating the water column because of that decreased algal growth and essentially the seagrass can grow yeah that's exactly right yeah so and therefore basically we get more fish and then everyone's happy so i mean these are the things that look i you guys need to communicate that better you know if, if i'm speaking frankly I mean, that's a massive massive win for the whole catchment i mean but why aren't people jumping in? Why is it on the paper? Why is it, it Well, it is. That's the thing. So um, I've spent the last, I don't know how long, five years talking about the water quality improvements. Um, I've also spent the last three weeks talking about that seagrass yeah. recovery, yeah. You know, awesome. even as as recently as yesterday on the ABC radio. So, you know, I'm, we're trying to get the message out. But as you know, it's difficult to cut through with an environmental message yeah. against all the other yeah. rubbish that's on uh, yeah. mainstream media. So, yeah. But it's interesting you say that, like, because we, we did a recent survey and actually asked what to the Australian population, a thousand people uh, survey all across Australia, all demographics, and we actually asked them with increased population growth in Australia, what are your key concerns? And we give people a list of, you know, is it traffic, is it jobs, is it housing affordability, is it crime, is it water supply, is it marine and waterway health? And we 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 talk about the results to various councils and people all around the country, and we say to them, what do you think people are concerned about? And most people say, oh, it's traffic or it's jobs, whatever. It's everything that we hear in the press every day. The, our, but the number one concern of the Australian public from our little thousand person survey, the number one concern was marine and waterway health. And the same question was asked in 2010 by the state government in a, in a survey about two and a half thousand people in southeast Queensland. Again, same question and the same top answer. The number one concern of the, of the southeast Queensland public and the Australian public was marine and waterway health. We just don't hear it much in the press. No, that's right. It's not. It's not a not a sexy news story by any stretch. Well, we're trying to bring some well, sexy well, feelings. I, was about to say, <laughs> I recently, uh, well, actually, probably the start of this year, had a lovely lunch with a guy by the name of Stephen Oliver, who's head of factual for the ABC, and his wife Adriana Verges is. I know Adriana. Yeah. She is such a wonderful lady. Yeah, She's yeah, doing just, such amazing stuff down there in Sydney, and it, it's the same stuff you guys are doing up here. Adriana and I have sat on a uh, seagrass restaurant network awesome. uh, together there's actually quite a lot of people around the countryside who are <laughs> trying to restore seagrass and and get that in in the news and get get funding for it so and she's one of those and yeah. apparently you're actually going down and, and actually basically growing it again aren't you well adriana is yeah though, so uh, down down south they have different seagrass species down there yeah. so th- they actually go down and broadcast seed it or they go and plant it's uh, extraordinary what they do, yeah. isn't it you know, it's incredible it's um yeah they're doing it all around. It's been one of the big things of improving water quality within Sydney Harbour. Anyway, wow. And, and so you mentioned the, the Moreton Bay, uh, which is I guess the receiving environment for a lot of southeast Queensland is in good condition. So what sort of report card grade did that get? Well, this year we gave the Western Bay, which is the 
the poorest part of Moreton Bay, we gave that an A minus, and that's the first wow. time in twenty years. That's impressive. So that makes of the five report card zones in the bay, all of them except for one now gets an A. Wow, and it's worth noting this is a, a bay that receives uh, flow cash and runoff from Brisbane, yeah. uh, Ipswich. Logan, you know, all very dense urban environments and a whole bunch of, I guess, farming in the in the catchment as well. But I guess that's the sort of question. So that's a great news story. But I guess what are the key pressures currently on water quality in the Bay? Yeah, so the caveat on that fantastic news story is that a lot of the improvements we've seen in the past four years has been on the back of a very dry spell. Ah, so right. we haven't had that a great connection between the catchment and the bay. Mm. So one of the big things that we want to do uh, in the future is to say, well, we know we're going to get floods. Yeah. So let's get up in the catchments now while it's yeah. dry and help farmers out, help you know, help uh, councils out and community groups out to put some resilience back in the system um, and protect those catchments from being eroded uh, come floods. Is that the key pressure, key risk? Is that erosion, that increased sediment load from our rural environments? Draining into Moreton Bay? Yeah, that's one of the big ones. So in a legacy of clearing over 150 years and, you know, an urbanising catchment Mm. as we've got, that clears the catchment, which means those soils Mm. are then exposed and readily uh, eroded. So channel erosion, hill slope erosion, all the boring erosions that you want to hit, see that they end up in the the creeks and rivers and then make make their way down into the estuaries and out into the bay. Yeah, and are we still clearing land in the Moreton Bay catchment? Yeah, so there has been quite a bit of clearing over the past 10 or so years. Um, the state government's got some pretty good stats on that. Yeah. Why are we clearing? Well, that's a good question. Um, there's a whole bunch of different motivations for that. Um, Economic well, I can, I can t- I'm not sure about Moreton Bay, but you know what the leading cause of deforestation oh, is? Here we go. Here we go. Oh, I'm just going to bring it up. Leading, what, what do you think the leading cause of deforestation yes, yes. in Australia and globally is? It's clearing for animal agriculture. Australia is one of the world leaders in clearing of, of, of native vegetation. And Queensland is a worse. I think the stat I heard the other day, they clear about 600 uh, Melbourne cricket grounds full of uh, native vegetation every day. The leading reason for that clearing is to make room for cows. See, see the veins popping out of his head. <laughs> well, does, it does make me angry face. because it is no, no, completely no, unnecessary. I like, mate, I like it. A good angry <laughs> vegan, mate. <you> know? <laughs> I'm just bringing some truth bombs to the conversation. That's all I'm doing, mate. No, 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 okay, so we're, we're, so we're clearing the land. Because we clear it, rains and then sediments go down, they, they get transported along yep. through the creeks, rivers, and obviously mm. out of the Morton Bay. Yep. So... Just trying to dumb it down for some of our listeners. Yeah, obviously when you when you clear vegetation, when you clear a forested area, you get increased runoff. Yeah. So every, uh, it basically takes a lot less rainfall to generate runoff and that means more frequent and more uh, more volume of uh, flow going into our waterways. So those channels, those creeks, et cetera, have been adapted uh, and their, I guess their geomorphology has been adapted to receive a, a certain amount of flow. But obviously that changes when you change the catchment. So and that's why so we're seeing increased erosion, particularly in our, in our gullies and our creeks. So, so add to that, though, they also there's an urbanisation story there. Sure, so it's not course. just the rural catchments. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a legacy of clearing. Absolutely, we've got big problems up there. But I mean, there's a huge amount of urbanisation going yeah. in, in the southeast Queensland catchment, uh, whereby the same sort of processes occur. You clear, mm. you clear the land for, for property development, and we won't want, need to live somewhere. So that's fine. But we don't really consider what we're doing to the amount of runoff. So mm. you've got all this hard pack service. You've got roofs, you've got um, driveways and roads, concrete structures. So any time kind of rainfall that falls on the catchment runs off. Mm. So that takes all the pollutant loads with it. So we've really changed the way that our urban catchments deliver sediment and nutrient loads and other pollutants into waterways. Mm. And it happens all the time now. None of that rainfall stays in the catchment. It all disappears downstream. See, if you're Moreton Bay right 
right now, you'd be like, come on, guys, you, you, you came to me on both sides. You're building, you know, developments, we're clearing land. I mean, it's... It's not a good, not a good deal for the for, for the bay, really. Like, yeah, but it, uh, I guess I guess with uh, this is the. Key, I mean, yeah, as you say, people benefit. got to live. People, people, people need a place to live, and to some degree, we do need to clear land for something, even though it's not for mooks. Well, we, we could certainly lo- we need a lot less land if we actually stop eating bloody beef. As simple as that. I think the average vegan needs about eighteen times less land than the Australian meat eater. Paul, Doctor <laughs> Paul, Doctor Paul. What you have for lunch, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really juicy beef burger. No, I, look, I didn't. Well, chicken, can, I can, can I ask a question? Like, I, I often get on my vegan bandwagon. And yeah, I which talk is about, now. Which is now. And I often talk about the environmental impacts associated with animal agriculture. So uh, animal agriculture, leading, one of the leading causes of climate change, uh, leading cause of deforestation, one, the leading cause of ocean dead zones. Um, I could go on. The leading cause of species loss, leading cause of biodiversity loss. As a, as a scientist, when you know that information, does that actually change your behaviour in your day-to-day life? He just said he had a steak for lunch, bro. I'm just asking. <laughs> no, I was joking. I didn't have a steak for lunch. But yeah. it, no, it, it, it does. Um, but I think the, one of the critical things as a scientist and as someone who, who does obviously care about the environment, which you clearly do, mm. um, you've got to think about the other people and the other, other people's values. Sure. So not for a second would I suggest that my values should be passed on to somebody else. So I've got, I'm trying to think of how do we encourage the entire community to have a conversation and say these are the values that we want in our catchments and that might be cattle farming, but how do you do it sustainably? How do you do it in concert with all the other values we have, which is tourism, which is good drinking water, which is fisheries, you know, which is recreation and a good lifestyle? Mm. How do you do that together? So yeah. that's, the, that's the conversation we need to have as a community. Yeah. There's no one solution. You know, there's not Veganism obviously isn't the entire community is not going to turn vegan. Oh, I think we will. <laughs> I, I don't exactly want to say that. 30 years' time we'll all be vegan. Like you, you I'll have to look at the impossible foods, the Beyond Meats. They're all basically creating a better, more superior and cheaper product than beef. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.